0: Nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.
1: Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, we have a special guest today, Mohamed el Arian. He's got a new book out called The Only Game in Town. We've got him to talk about central banks and what they need to do to avoid another financial catastrophe.
2: This is Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets... And then some.
1: Welcome to the Money Beat podcast. Paul Vigna, Stephen Grosser here with you. And we are joined today by a very special guest, Mohammed El-Aryan. Most of you folks out there, you probably don't need any introduction to, to who this gentleman is, but if you don't know him, I'll read a little bit out of his, his biography here. Uh, he is the chair of President Obama's Global Development Council. He is the chief economic advisor at Allianz, which is the corporate parent of PIMCO, and he is a contributor at at financial Times he 's written for Bloomberg he was uh, the whereas at the IMF he was the deputy director at the International Monetary Fund, a managing director at Solomon Smith Barney, president and CEO of the Harvard Management Company. I could go on and on i don 't really need to i, I don 't think Mohammed, how are you
0: i 'm fine thank you
1: Listen, I want to thank you very much for coming in today. You know, I wanted to start when I was doing research on on my first book, I came across a story that you told about something you told your wife during the the real depth of the financial crisis in 2008 where you told her one day to go out, go to the ATM and take out as much money as she could, and when she asked why, you said cuz you didn't think the banks were going to open the next day or you didn't know if they would. How close were we in 2008? To a complete collapse
0: we were very close that was the Wednesday Lehman had defaulted on the Monday and on that day on Wednesday one of the money market funds had declared that it would break the buck Um, I was you know in in the engine room at PIMCO um, and we we're seeing incredible dysfunction, in the most basic of all things, which was cash management and collateral management. So when the day was over, I called my wife and I said, look, I'm gonna be staying in the office for a while. Can you please go to the ATM and take out whatever cash we allowed to take out? I think it was about $500. And she said, why? And I said, because I'm not sure the banks are gonna open tomorrow. And she said, Okay, I don't think she she quite believed me. (laughs) A few months later, when both the Treasury Secretary and the head of the New York Fed shared their stories, it turned out that we had gotten very close to what's called a bank holiday. Mm -hmm. When you close the banks because they're no longer functioning like they should, and you try to reset the system. So it was really scary, and we managed not just to avert a, a bank closure, but we also managed to avert a multi-year depression, which right. would have damaged not just this generation, but also the next generations.
1: Right. So everyone knows what happened after 2008, we know what has happened in intervening years, and the ascendancy of the central banks, and all of that is... What you are writing about in your book and the reason you're here today, The Only Game in Town, which has just come out, and it really is kind of a almost a, an, an epic overview of everything that has happened, where we are, and where you think we may be headed. And that is what is really interesting. Do you think that the central banks, and look, we want to talk to you also about some of the things going on just this week, but what level of control do the central banks have right
0: now? They do not have as much control as they would like, and certainly not as much control as the markets and the politicians give them credit for. Mm-hmm. They find themselves in a rather difficult situation, not by choice, but by necessity. They've taken on too many responsibilities with too few tools. And I say not by choice, because that's not something, that's, they don't want to be there, but they felt that no other policy-making entity was stepping up to the plate, that political dysfunction had paralyzed a comprehensive policy response. So they decided that they would step in. Why? Because they have relative political autonomy. What they didn't bargain for, what nobody bargained for, is that political dysfunction would last for so long that central banks would have to go more and more experimental and become less and less effective.
2: No, you really did see that in the years, you know, between 2008 and now. I mean, almost in times felt like the governments in the U.S. and Europe especially were almost working against um, the central banks and against sort of, you know, trying to generate growth with, like, the debate, you know, the fights over uh, the debt ceiling. Um, then you had the fiscal cliff um, and always taking negotiations, too, up to the last, you know, sort of possible moment.
0: Yes. I mean, the good news is is that... Politicians have stopped harming the economy. Um, The whole debate over the debt ceiling, um, the shutdown of the government, um, all that hurt the economy. The bad news is that they haven't unleashed the real potential of this economy. They haven't dealt with their basic responsibility of economic governance. And as a result, we've over relied on central banks. And we are now dealing with the consequences of using an imperfect tool. It's a little bit like you going to the doctor and she or he doesn't have the right medication but gives you another medication that right. can dull the pain for a while. And every time you go back, they double, they double or triple the medication but don't deal with the structural impairment. And at some point, you as the patient will start worrying about the side effects. And that's where we are today.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it seems to me, especially in the markets, that what you're seeing is this this the crux of the fact that what we we're just talking about that the the governments have basically not done their jobs, and the central banks have overcompensated. In the markets, they were they seemed fine with that for a long time, uh, especially in the equity markets. They were happy with the central banks taking this leading role because it just meant that rates were going to be cheap and and money was going to be flowing easily. Right now, 2016, January, excuse me, January into February, it seems like we are, and we've been at this point before and it hasn't actually happened, but it seems like once again, we're at the point where that turn in policy has to come.
0: <clears throat> yeah, so, so, you know, it's really interesting to, to see what has happened. So you're absolutely right. For a very long time, equity markets treated the central banks as their BFFs, their best friends forever. Whenever we had volatility, the tapered taper tran term, a few Chinese concerns, central banks would come in with reassuring words and actions as well. So, so markets got conditioned to trade on central banks rather than trade on fundamentals. And there was a massive decoupling between financial asset prices and fundamentals. And there was also a massive decoupling between risk-taking. Right. Lots of risk-taking in the financial sector, very little risk-taking by corporation who, prepare, who prefer to sit on their cash, earning zero at the bank, or to give it back uh, through share buybacks. There's a limit to how much you can decouple prices from fundamentals, and that limit was reached when concerns started to mount about the health of the global economy, when We started to see certain central banks less willing to play this game, including the Fed. And when we no longer had the patient pools of capital willing to step in and buy things countercyclically. And that's why we've had this enormous volatility. I'll give you a simple statistic. So far this year, all but five sessions in the Dow has seen intraday volatility of more than 100 points. and, and and that's that's quite a statement about the rising volatility in financial markets no
2: one of the questions too in, in you sort of touch on uh on this in the in the book is you know this is uh, you know sort of we're we're rewriting you know sort of history and what we're seeing kind of now um is some really – like some trading and some you know, asset classes you know, sort of moving. Like you talk about bonds and where you know, uh, the yields on bonds. You talk about the, you know, the sort of how uh, oil and uh, stocks are sort of moving in tandem that, that don't really make sense or historically haven't made sense before.
0: Correct. I mean I can give you a whole list of anomalies. Um, you know, central banks going negative on the policy rate. Right. Japan joined the ECB. About a third of outstanding government debt now trades at negative nominal yields. Right. You want to you you lend your money to the governments? You have to pay something to do that. Oil and equities, not only is the correlation very strange, but lower oil prices that, play, that are an immediate tax cut for the consumer are now viewed as a curse, not as a blessing. Yeah. We've had uncharacteristic policy slippage in China. We have anti-establishment political movements defining the political landscape. Now, I can provide you an explanation for each of these, but that would be misleading. They all speak to something much bigger, which is that the current path we're on of frustratingly low growth and the repression of financial volatility by central bank, that path, is getting exhausted right and and all this these are signals of this process
1: i think at one point in the book you refer to what mario draghi did when he uh, used his whatever it takes rhetoric excuse me folks you called it a magic trick is the magic trick wearing off
0: yes i mean the problem with magic trick is that they involve a certain amount of diversion. you have to divert people's attention um and there's a limit to how often you you can divert people's attention so the magic is wearing off and also we have a new phenomenon which is that of divergent central banks so earlier all the central banks were on the same side they were all together repressing financial volatility by keeping interest rates extremely low and by using their balance sheet this is no longer the case one central bank the fed is slowly easing its foot off the accelerator in a very careful manner the other central banks, the ECB, the People's Bank of China, and the Bank of Japan, they are all stepping even harder on the accelerator. Now, that's not the same as having a unified central bank community. So, another element that is adding to the volatility is that of divergence among central banks.
2: How much do you think, you uh, this has come up in the market, I think, thinks the Fed moved too early. You know, inflation is still very low. Um, Do you think the Fed, you know, was sort of out of step in moving in December? Should they have held off on moving on rates? Or did they just have to move?
0: So the answer is no, they didn't move too early. And if anything, they moved too late. I think they had a window earlier in the year where they could have moved. Okay. I find it a bit ironic, I must tell you, that initially most of the people that you're talking about welcomed the Fed move. Yeah. Right, right. Right. They welcomed it. Yeah. And then we started getting these uncharacteristic policy slippages out of China. And next thing you know, financial volatility returns. And the people who had welcomed the Fed moving not only questioned whether it's a good idea, some of them are now even saying the Fed should cut. Right. And and that that just tells you how dependent financial markets have become on central banks. Yes. Now,
2: you, you sort of talk about the, you know, you go into, we're coming up at this T sort of, you know, intersection, and one path leads to not a great place, and another path leads to a much better place. Can you talk a little bit about, um, on, about that?
0: So, the notion of a T-junction, or T-junction, if you like statistics, right. a bimodal distribution, is that the road you're on ends. That's what you know for sure. What happens then is not predestined. You can either come out of a T-junction on one side or on the other. And let me say up front, that's not the conclusion I wanted to reach. (laughs) (laughs) Because it makes me come across as this wishy-washy economist on the one hand, on the other hand. But as hard as I tried to be more deterministic, it simply wasn't intellectually honest. Mm -hmm. The reality is that we control these choices. By we, I mean governments, corporations, and households. There are decisions we can take to make sure that we come out of the T on the right side, which means that we have higher inclusive growth and general financial stability. Alternatively, if we don't make the right decisions, we will come out on the wrong side, which means not just low growth, but recession and the return of financial instability. I would love to tell you that we're going to end up on this particular road, but the reality is that the only thing I know for sure is that the road we're on is ending. And where we go from there depends on our choices.
1: Mohammed El-Aryan, the name is the only game in town. It came out, landed January 26th from Random House. This has been the Money Beat Podcast. Paul Vigne, Stephen Grosser. That wraps up part one of our interview. Come back for part two.
2: Enjoy our shows on your device. Look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at wsj.com slash podcasts. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort.